wrote a work called A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life. And before we dismiss our kids, I want them to, I want to speak this over them and also for you. In that book, he has a section that has a father talking to a child. And I want you to hear this. He says, first of all, my child, think magnificently of God. Magnify his providence. Adore his power. Pray to him frequently and incessantly. Bear him always in your mind. Teach your thoughts to reverence him in every place, for there is no place where he is not. Therefore, my child, therefore our children, fear and worship and love God. First and last, think magnificently of God. And with that, we'll dismiss our children to children's ministry. You may be seated. And if you will open your Bibles to the book of Proverbs, chapter 11. We'll be reading this morning from Proverbs chapter 11, verses 24 through 28. And before we do, I think it'd be good to bring something up that we see repeatedly in the book of Proverbs that is helpful to remember, and that is simply that God's promises run in both directions. We typically hear the word promise as related to God or related to the scriptures, and we think that those promises are always positive, that all of God's promises are positive. It's actually not the case. God's promises run in both directions, and we see this time and time again in Proverbs, and we'll see it in our text. There are promises for the righteous, and there are promises for the unrighteous. They just go in different directions, but God's word remains faithful and true for both people. So in many respects, the Bible is not only for the righteous, but it is also for the wicked. It is, it is a blessing and a reward of pro, a promise of reward for the righteous, and it is a warning, not a threat, a promise, as they would say, to those who choose not to trust him. So with that, let's look at our text, and we'll see this pattern uh, and much more beginning in verse 24 of Proverbs chapter 11. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. That'll be our main text for today. Just for a sense of context, verse 25, whoever brings blessing will be enriched and one who waters will himself be watered. The people curse him who holds back grain, but a blessing is on the head of him who sells it. Whoever diligently seeks good seeks favor, but evil comes to him who searches for it. Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. So we have uh, in the main text today, verse 24, an upside and a downside, a promise to those who give freely, they will grow richer, and a promise to those who withhold even what they should give they will suffer lack. Now, I want to spend the majority of the time talking about the upside, about the promise to those who scatter freely, and we will spend the majority of our time in that section. Let's just get the other piece out of the way and understand at least partly what God is saying through his word when it says that one withholds even what he should give and only suffers want. I think the question that sits before you when you see this verse is, what is the should? 
right? That seems to be very important there. The one who should give, who he withholds what he should give and suffers only want. You know, over the years, I've, I, it's funny how many things I'm still learning that I feel like, man, would have been really nice to know this 20 years ago or that 20 years ago. And I just want to tell you two things I'm learning that are kind of in the background of my message today. The first one is, is to learn the difference between being a pastor and being a pasture. Um, a pastor directs people to the food. A pastor is not fed upon. Uh, and those are, it's an interesting distinction, something that, to learn over time, because it's very easy to mistake those two things in the course of ministry. And then there's a, a but it's also not super easy to draw clear distinctions, because it's not always entirely clear whether it's the Lord who's using you or people. So I'm not, I don't have any firm conclusions on that. I just want to tell you this is background information that's, that's probably going to peek through in various respects through this message. The difference between being a pastor and being a pastor. Uh, and the second one is this weird tension. There's three words that are kind of working in tension with one another in some respects. On the one hand, you have the role of information. And so I'm presenting information to you. And that's over here, and that seems to be a good thing. Over here, you have manipulation. Something more than information, right? Maybe even something less than information, but you have informing you of things over here and manipulation over here. And I, I, I think I understand these two boundaries really well, more or less. The one in the middle would be motivation. And it isn't always clear to me what role preaching has in that particular aspect. And I bring that up to you because we're talking about giving today, and it is probably, if I have anything to offer people, if, the, if, if, there's, a, if there's a brand that I have at this point as a preacher, it is to be straightforward with you and, and, and essentially to just tell you what I think is the truth the best I can and in this particular respect related to giving, it would be what, what's happening in the background is, is that all of us have seen many examples of biblical data being presented as information, but actually being manipulation, right? So I'm dealing with an unwelcomed guest who came into the house before me in some respects, and not just one, but many and so I'm, these are things, I don't, I don't necessarily have a clear way of, of sorting through these things yet. These are just things that are creeping in as I consider them. And in this particular message, maybe one thing I could be clear about in that it would be, I want to really veer away from the manipulation side uh, and might even, in so doing, neglect the motivation side and really just stand firmly in the information side. And that's important uh, as it relates to this question that we're asking uh, the first question we're asking is, what should, what does should mean in verse 24? One withholds what he should give and suffers only lack. Does should mean tithing? Here's my uh, honest, uh, non-manipulative answer to that. It seems to me that the tithe has always been an ideal place to start, there are some who teach that an obligation to tithe was eliminated when Jesus came 
it was a part of the law. That is patently false because the tithe existed prior to the coming of the law and the lives of men like, well, at the very beginning, Cain and Abel and Abraham and so on and so forth. But if someone does believe that the tithe has been eliminated as a result of Jesus coming, I am and have never really been inclined to argue with them about that particular point. Acts 20, Paul sits down with the Ephesian elders and says, I work night and day. These hands provided not only for my needs, but for the needs of those around me, so, so on and so forth. It would have never occurred to anyone in that conversation to ask Paul if he was tithing. There's something beyond tithing. And I know that something is incredibly important to God. If you want to quibble over the hermeneutics of the prescription of giving 10%, I think we're just already giving ground that the Bible would not encourage us to give. Uh, Dallas Willard once said, it's a lot easier to build temples than to become temples. And I think this argument about whether the tithe is, you know, strictly required or not is an argument more about building temples than about becoming temples. God wants all of you, every bit of you. And um, so I don't think that if I were to say, what is the should? And I said it, and I, I kind of laid out my terms earlier for kind of how I'm going to answer this question. I do not think I would get in a discussion with someone about the tithe as a requirement I don't think that's the place where this should best lands. Here's where the tack I would take. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 1, says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any sympathy, any affection, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significantly than yourselves. Now here I'm on firm should ground. Your attitude toward your accumulation of finances must be in compliance with this verse. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you, verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That attitude is not optional. Doing nothing, doing nothing, selfish ambition or conceit is not optional. It is the proper response to the gospel. In fact, I would simply say it this way. Whatever your theology related to giving is, in particular to tithe, you need to make sure that the way you give, your commitment to giving, is, is, is a servant to your overall pursuit of humility. You need to make sure that your approach to giving is a servant to the far more important value of humility. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And I do believe that one of the best, surest ways 
of describing to you what Proverbs 24, uh, Proverbs 10, 24 means is that when you are being conceited and self-centered and prideful in your view of money, you are in the disfavor of God in some practical way. God opposes the proud. He actively opposes the proud. And so if there's an area of our lives that is, is not self-consciously pursuing humility, if there's a way in which our finances reflect conceit, ambition, and not looking out for the interests of others, I would say, well, I can tell you right now, you're on the wrong side. And you will probably experience some kind of antagonism from the Lord that will show up in your life. Another way to think about this is, I think Haggai chapter 1 might be the best full-rounded theological explanation of what Proverbs eleven twenty four is trying to say. A people were released from bondage. Does that sound familiar? It's amazing how the themes just keep coming. The gospel themes just keep coming. The people of Israel were released from bondage, and they were freed to, re- to return to their homeland. And one of the first jobs at that particular stage in the history of redemption was to rebuild the temple. And what began to happen rather quickly was in their freedom, they used their freedom as a cover-up for evil and selfishness. That's also in the Bible. And in their freedom, they neglected prioritizing God with their giving. They say, well, what else did they prioritize? Oh, they made sure their homes looked amazing. And God sends the prophet Haggai to confront confront this particular idea, this particular problem. And so Haggai chapter 1, verse 2, Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruin? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And this is where we begin to see this idea of Proverbs eleven twenty four that you can withhold what you should give and suffer lack. This is, this is laid out expressly in this text. Consider your ways, he says. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he earns wages, does so to put them into a bag of holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it and that I might be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. This is the route of selfish ambition. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, it blew away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the lands and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and all their labors. Is tithing required? Irrelevant, functionally Humility is required. A willful, intentional, 
proactive rejection of self-centeredness is required. And you don't want to live in any other space than that one. It will result in having holes, maybe not only in your money bags, but as we'll see in a little bit, in your very soul. And so what is the should in Proverbs eleven twenty four? Man, the should is big and spirit-led and love-led and wisdom-led and progressive and so many other things. It would be such a, a, a low, it would not be appropriate of me to tell you the should is a simple, easy, this one thing. It's not, it's not. The should is so much bigger than anything, any rule that I could give you. I think it'd just be good to remind it before we move on from this verse that generally whenever you put anything before God, you are going to bring judgment, discipline, and disfavor on that thing. I want to make sure that's heard because you may have noticed, and I'm speaking from some self-interest here, you may have noticed that love is in the air at Providence. New love. Young love. Well, friends, let me just tell it straight up. Let's, let's, be, let's do an excursus, as they say, from money for a moment and say, don't put that before God. Don't you do that. Don't you do that. You know what's going to happen? It's the best way to do damage to the thing is to put it before God. So whether we're talking about money or marriage or a million other things, even health, there will always be a temptation to find, we'll talk more about this in a moment, to find these things as ends to themselves, to serve our own selfish ambition, our own self-centeredness, our own pride. And the real key to abundance, it seems to be, is not a rule, but a series of self-enforced commitments that in various ways systemically fight against the rise of pride and conceit in your own life. All right. Let me just talk about a couple more things specific to tithing, and it'll only take a minute. Two things about tithing. I think it's a good place to start. I don't think it's typically a good place to end. I think that all things being equal, as you progress in life, God will prosper you, and you will probably find yourself wanting to do even more than that. But I would say two practical things, because we have so many young homes being built here. Number one, uh, this is the most controversial, uh, I would Never choose to save money over being reasonably generous with my money. If my budget was sufficiently tight to the point where I had to choose between a 401k and, say, giving, I would never, ever choose saving over giving. Most people do not have to make that choice. If you think you have to make that choice, there's a decent chance there's other money that you should look to first. Uh, ideally, these two would never be in competition with one another. If you find yourself in a place, in, especially in your youthfulness, where these two are in competition legitimately, and you've really looked for other fat and other things to trim, and you just haven't found anything, and these are the two choices, I can either put more money towards savings or I can give. I don't think that it is wise to trust an earthly savings account over an eternal one. I think it's a bit of tempting God, in fact. Um, 
to, and I'd love to have this discussion with you personally, but in my, this is just me giving my best advice. If that tension exists, I would not think that you would want to say this savings account <laughs> that depends on the stock market and rain and uh, civilization remaining in order and so on and so forth is the safer one compared to just giving God some money and trusting him with it in the long run. I don't think that's a common problem, but it certainly was an issue for me in my youth in particular. It's an issue for me now often. Um, but I've chosen apparently to take a vow of poverty. So the second one is, uh, is, is uh, not very controversial, but just a good reminder. You should never tithe when you are actively going into debt, like in terms of consumer debt and so on. If you make $3,000 a month, and you're, that's not covering it for you, and so you're going $600 a month into debt or something, friends, you're not tithing. You're, you're, just, putting, you're just putting giving on a credit card, right? So, so on the one hand, I would say, like, if you had to choose between tithing and savings, tithe. But if, you, if the choice is go into debt or don't tithe, don't tithe. Uh, again, I suspect there are a lot of factors at play here that are more complicated but that's another piece of this that's, that's also equally important. And believe it or not, this happens. I, 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 was, I would do this. I didn't know I was doing this. I just, I would have this commitment to generosity that was significant. And I didn't have the income to cover my commitment to generosity. Now, I will tell you straight up, uh, which of those two, do you think God was good to me to make up for that mistake? Like, do you think God just like, okay, Chris, you got your act together now. We'll, we'll help you figure it out. Yeah, of course, of course. But it's not something to do knowingly. You know, It's something to pay attention to. All right, so that's the downside. Let's talk about the upside. The first part of the verse says, one gives freely and yet grows all the richer. One gives freely and yet goes, grows all the richer. The real vibe of this verse and the reason why we have these comparisons is because one is neglecting to give even a basic amount and he is suffering lack, and another is giving way beyond the basic amount, and he is growing all the richer. That's one of the reasons why we need the contrast that, he, that, that Proverbs provides so often. I did a little work in the original Hebrew on this, and the, the, the words are all very agrarian. The word forgive is literally sow or scatter, and the more literal translations, like the New American Standard, have this verse as follows. There is one who scatters and yet increases all the more. It's an, it's an interesting dilemma that we face as we grow further away from agrarian thinking. The Bible doesn't actually seem to let us do that. So we're going to have to be conscious in the upcoming years to to whether through reading like fiction or like one of us owning a farm or something, agrarian language and philosophy is bound up in the Bible in a way that doesn't seem to be separable, even the word pastor. And so sometimes it's interesting to find like there's a limit to modernity and, and, and um, you know, industrial revolution type stuff. It, we've got to figure out a way to consistently think like the Bible thinks and the Bible thinks in agrarian terms. This verse is really just about someone who is being generous with a heart that is similar to a man who is sowing seeds. 
you would never find a man, I suppose all sorts of psychosis are possible and dysfunction, so I guess I shouldn't say never. It would be odd to find a farmer who was like, you know, I, don't, I, only, have, I only have a thousand tomato seeds. I'm just gonna put five of them in the ground and hold these other seeds for later. It's like, oh my goodness, you know, you know what a seed does, right? You're gonna get a lot of tomatoes. This is the attitude of the giver described on the first part of this. It is a person who just has total confidence that what he sows will come back in fruitfulness. This is the very same language that Paul uses when in 2 Corinthians 9, he is speaking to the very obviously self-centered Corinthians about giving. And he, if you have your Bibles, look at this with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. Paul says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work as it is written. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. That's, that's a better fuller explanation of what we see in our text in Proverbs eleven twenty four, Paul speaks of being enriched in every way. And I want to just take the remainder of our time to talk about three of the ways that God causes this sort of happy-hearted generosity to increase in the lives of those who sow cheerfully and bountifully. The three ways are temporal wealth, um, I guess the, the way you could say this is give a buck and you get two bucks back, something like that. Or give a buck and get a buck back. A Puritan Matthew Henry says of this verse, God through generosity turns a giving hand into a getting hand, right? So there's a temporal kind of response that God offers, and there's many examples of this. And then there's eternal wealth, so, so temporal wealth, eternal wealth, and there's psychological wealth. And, I, and I, I named it psychologically wealth, psychological wealth to entice some of you and offend others. I, I chose a word that was not predictable so that you would keep listening. I do that sometimes, by the way. Each, let's talk about eternal wealth first. Of the three, eternal wealth is the most valuable, obviously. Every tiny gift given in faith in this life is exponentialized in a way that exceeds our ability to understand. The Christian is going to spend forever, you are going to spend forever in a physical world, and that world will be perfect in every way, full of every possible pleasure, and you will be perfected, you will receive a perfect body that allows you to enjoy God's perfect creation in a way that you can't even dream of now. And so if you were to be generous with your finances here and receive only eternal rewards, you would be 
you would be, uh, in, in, in a few years, uh, whenever you pass away, I shouldn't say a few years, you would say, you would say, oh my goodness, what an incredible deal I have stumbled into. If, if all of the rewards were only eternal, you would think, oh my goodness, what an amazing, merciful, and gracious, and generous God I have. But he would turn these little things I gave away in this life into this exceeding weight of glory in the next life. And Jesus is really keen on giving us this inside information because he's obviously been there, he made there, and he's here on earth to get us there. And so he is really keen on this particular kind of treasure. And he says in Luke 12, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that do, does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. So, I mean, that alone is a good deal. If you have faith, you think it's a good deal. If you don't have faith, you're not so sure. I get it. Let's talk about temporal wealth. Well, this is probably the least valuable of the three, but it is worth mentioning. We see plenty of instances in the scriptures where God increases someone's financial wealth as a result of their obedience to him. And we see many more instances in the case of church history and many, many more instances in even our own lives. We could look around and see that this is indeed true, and very often what God does at the temporal level is that he provides career advancement, career favor, so on and so forth, and it's well understood and well, uh, it's easy to see that God often does, as a result of giving, increase people's temporal capacities, temporal wealth. Uh, my big problem with the prosperity movement is that it's run mostly by unregenerate people. And so they can't see the eternal, right? I, I think, I think, I don't think, I don't think all of them are even liars per se. I think they're just earthly people holding an eternal book and they're picking one aspect of God's blessings, the one that seems real to them. I think in many respects, in an ironic way, the prosperity movement suffers from just an extreme lack of faith. They, they, they don't actually see the eternal. They, they haven't been raised with Christ, and therefore they can't look at things above where they are seated with Christ. And they certainly can't be um, enthused and motivated by the idea of later, because later is a faith thing, right? And, and I actually think it's, it's an expression of just... It's, it's not the teaching as much as it is the eyes looking at the teaching. It's like you just don't see all that God is doing. But generally speaking, there's nothing wrong with just taking what Proverbs 11.24 says and say, yeah, very often when we, when we sow in a generous way, God blesses us in a generous way, not only eternal. Jesus says, whoever leaves father and mother and households and so forth for my sake will be rewarded in this life and in the life to come. It's just, it's just, it's just the, it's essentially the function of someone sort of like just proclaiming the smallest bit of the story and then building a life around that. It's like, well, that's you're just missing so much. But so our, we've covered eternal. That's definitely obviously going to be 
We might have not, not have the faith to see it now. That is obviously going to be the spot where it's like, this is the best reward. Temporal, eh, comes and goes. Your results may vary. But I want to talk about this third category that I have called psychological wealth. And so my, my position, just to make clear, is that when we are on the, uh, the right end of Proverbs eleven twenty four, and we, we give generously, God increases wealth in a variety of ways, uh, certainly eternal, very often temporal. But I want to talk about what I'm calling psychological wealth. And as I said before, I'm using that term in a particular way uh, because I want you to pay attention. It could say spiritual or emotional and, or relational, and you would all, you would all jump ahead. This category is certainly less important than eternal wealth, but it is vastly more important than temporal wealth. And here's the idea. When you start tracing out what people actually use their money for, what they actually try to get with their money, I think most of it comes down to achieving essentially what you might describe as psychological ends. A sense of accomplishment, adventures, experiences, a sense of belonging, a sense of security, happiness, well-being, so forth, relational warmth and connection. Most people spend most of the money they have to spend that isn't just like feeding them on achieving these sorts of outcomes. In many respects, America is such a very interesting place because we get to watch a whole arc of, 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 of wealth building take place in a lifetime. And that's not that's not a thing you get to see in every nation, but you know you get to see with someone like Jeff Bezos who started in a garage, you know, and you get to see him become the mo the wealthiest person in the world, and you get to see what it does to his life and what it satisfies and what it doesn't satisfy, and you get to see how his kids turn out, and you get to see what his wife thinks of all of this, and you get to also see the end point for all of these guys is always one thing, altruism. It's the, always the end point. They 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 acquire, they acquire, they acquire, and they're good at acquiring. What do people actually want to do with their money when they get it? They want these things. They want these things. This is what most of us would do. Honestly, I think because most of us have, stepping on my Calvinism over here, pure hearts might not be the right way to say this, but I think most of us have genuinely kind of good, simplistic intentions. Uh, we're not so much concerned about being on a yacht in the Mediterranean you know, with a bunch of, of women of ill repute, we would really like to take our kids to, you know, Disney World or something, right? Like, like this, is, this is our wheelhouse. This is what we would do with the money. What we would do with the money is try to feel a little more secure, try to pull our people closer together, try to bless our kids, um, try to have some adventures and some experiences. And, you know, one of the things we would do with our money even is just to, Use it as a measuring stick, and men, uh, men, men and women are working in a, a business place. You know, it's kind, of, it's kind of almost difficult not to, at some level, use your earning as like, okay, am I winning at this game or not? How am I doing? You know, to look at the bottom line as, a, as an expression of accomplishment. And so that's not, money's not buying you that exactly. What you're doing in all these cases is you're trying to transfer a physical thing into a spiritual thing. And here's, here's the interesting idea. 
there's this, um, there's this principle that I just think of as the lie of the idol. The lie of the idol. And the lie of the idol is something like this. You can pick any good thing that God created, and it will have enough glory in it because God, you know, it's God's fingerprints are still on it. You know, God leaves a Shekinah residue on all the stuff he, he makes. You can pick any good thing, sex, money, food, whatever. You can pick it, and you can see enough residual glory in it to tempt you to make it more important than God, right? That's kind of what the lie of the idol is. Next step. It will never give you what it promises, but it will give you enough to keep you coming back for more. It'll promise you a feast, put you on a starvation diet, and then teach you that to ever leave this uh, dispensary uh, is sheer ruin. And so money does this to us. Money can, it's full of God's glory. It's a beautiful thing. Wealth is a beautiful thing. And it tells us that if we got more of it, it would really make a difference in not our physical needs per se, but our psychological, our emotional, our relational aspirations. And so it gives us this promise, and we pursue the promise, and it's like, uh, well, it's not turned out to be quite as great as it promised, but I am getting a trickle. And there becomes a normalcy bias almost that's essentially like, um, well, I mean, this works. It doesn't work as great as I thought it would, but this works. And it can keep you coming back and coming back and coming back. And when it comes to pursuing these things we really want, which is peace and a sense of security and stability and a sense of accomplishment and so forth, it's not the best deliverer for those things. It delivers enough, though, to sort of get us in the game and keep us in this cycle of futility. If we take a step back and we just look at the Bible, and we just look at Proverbs eleven twenty four. we can say, okay, God has a plan for me that will end in my being taken care of. Think of it this way. If someone said to you, I will give you a million dollars, you'd be like, thank you. Now, I'm immediately thinking taxes and, you know, so on and so forth. We need to go into Igor mode and look at the catch and the strings attached and so on and so forth. But what if someone said, like, in terms of, uh, I'm not going to give you a million dollars, but I'm going to make you think you have a million dollars. I'm going to hypnotize you, and I'm going to make you think you have a million dollars in your bank account, and that, like, you're just, you know, you're just going to live that way, and nothing will ever come of it. There will always be money when you need it. Um, which, you know, would you, would, you, would you really see a difference? What if God actually just gives you the heart of a wealthy person without making you wealthy? Would that be good? Um, it'd be really good. And I'm going to end this with some personal testimonies. What if God gave you the heart of a wealthy person without actually making you wealthy? Would that be good? Would that be good enough? Might be better than good. Might be better than good enough. Because what we find is, is that people that are trying to grab these spiritual things with finances or with financial security, they're getting pieces. They're not getting what they thought they were getting. They're not getting it like they need it. And there's another issue. You know what Americans are terrible at? 
seeing the bad in excess. We're terrible at this. We're the, we're the type 2 diabetes nation of too much is never a bad thing. And something is going to happen. Something's going to give in our culture. We're going to recognize this as a massive data set, I think, down the road. Uh, should the Lord tarry, I think we will wind up seeing, uh, there will be terms for this. There are, it's already beginning to be like the diseases of excess and so on and so forth. We're going to begin to see that having a lot of temporal wealth is not actually even that good for us in some cases. Uh, there's nothing wrong with it. I, I would aspire to having as much as God would give me. It certainly doesn't give me the things I really want, though. You know, the WHO reports that people in wealthy countries suffer depression at, in as much as eight times the rate as poor countries do. Substance abuse rates amongst affluent teens is significantly higher than amongst middle-class teens. Teenagers in wealthy suburbs report more disturbances across several mental health domains when compared to those in extremely poor areas. By a margin of almost two to one, lawyers who specialize in divorce say that they only see a decline in the number of divorces during national economic downturns. So all the things we really want to get with our money, I don't think they really get us there, not very far. And I think probably the main value of having money is to be able to give it away. In terms of the psychological goods that we all desire for money to bring, it just does not seem like they bring them. I think they bring them just enough to keep us coming back to the dispensary to get our weekly gruel. It's the mud pie problem that Lewis talks about. We are far too easily satisfied. But I think the Bible is pretty clear. If you give generously, if you scatter generously... And if you really just design your life to be focused on more on giving than getting, then you will find that God blesses you in temporal ways and, of course, eternal ways, but most importantly in this thing I'm calling psychological ways. All of the things that most of us are trying to accumulate through money are spiritual in nature and can be acquired some other way more efficiently and more godly, more righteously. When you give freely, as it's described above, I think you are finding yourself in a position to receive the real benefits that people want the most out of their money. So, for instance, peace or security. Isaiah 63, 66, 26, 3. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And you, we, we tend to think, well, I don't have perfect peace. I trust in God. Show me the money. Like, are you sure you're not mistaking information you have in your head as belief? Different thing. Psalm 37. You know, we all want our kids to turn out well. And we think that, well, my wealth acquisition is probably going to help that. I don't know that it does. And Psalm 37 tells us what does. Verse 25, I have been young and now I'm old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously, and his children become a blessing. Let me wrap up with a personal testimony. Uh, some of you know some of these details. I don't know if I've ever actually just told you the main story, certainly from the pulpit. In 2004, I walked away from a very financially secure situation to start a ministry aimed at helping support indigenously run 
orphanages in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, I did so with a reasonable amount of due diligence to make sure my family was taken care of. I went out and raised support and also had guarantees from a large local church that we would be provided for uh, for the next several years. Within about a year, almost all of that support dried up um, almost entirely because people forgot. And so for the next 12 years or so, my wife and I raised our children right around the poverty line. I continued my work in Africa, as the Lord allowed, mostly by taking groups of people to Zambia. And we did what we could in other areas of our life to do ministry here in the U.S. And I traveled and spoke at conferences and so on and so forth. And we ourselves even sent a $200 monthly stipend via Western Union to the orphanage every month. Also, during that time, I planted a local church. Angela and I planted a local church, and we both kept various jobs to keep all of the plates spinning. Now, this was a time in my life when all the children were in the house and growing up, and there was a lot of sweetness in this season. Angela and I were thinking about some of the happiest moments in our lives, and for me, this season was, in some respects, some of the happiest moments in my life. My children are just so dang cute. I just loved having them all around. But on the other hand, personally, as an earner, as someone who values work and hustle and production and productivity, I very often felt discouraged and disappointed in myself and maybe even a little disappointed in God, although I think that would have been an improvement because I think I was mostly just focused on myself. Um, I wasn't close to being miserable per se, but I did not feel like life was really working either. Around 2015, my local church said to me, hey, why don't you take the summer off? Apparently, when you walk around like this crying, I'll, no, I'm kidding. Uh, it was just them being kind, and they said, why don't you take the summer off? And so they said, we'll arrange everything on our end. We'll, take, we'll, we'll hold the fort down. Why don't you take a sabbatical, and we'll cover things from here? Pastor friends of mine from all over the country found out about this and sent money to me to kind of travel a little bit during our sabbatical. And then other pastors, some of the same ones, would ask me to come preach at their church so then I could, like, you know, have a reason to go to these places and get a little bit more money when I got there. And during that summer, I wound up visiting my friend's church in Casper, Wyoming. And I could be wrong about the year. I think it was 2015 or so. So I'd taken a lot of people up to this point on trips to Zambia to help support this particular orphanage that we had connected with. And uh, this church in Casper, Wyoming, was one of the main churches that I would take over. And I would preach at this church from time to time. Uh, I'd gotten to know various people there and made some friends. And it's a traditional Southern Baptist church. Um, and so on Wednesday nights, you know, as God intended, you have dinner, you have dinner together, right? And uh, so it was one of those deals where we all arrived. I forget which kids I had with me. I only remember Wes because he went to the youth group, and that's part of the story. But standing there, getting ready to go in and have some dinner on Wednesday night, just, you know, walk through 10 years or so of pretty extreme financial lack and pretty extreme financial, uh, what's the word, um, self-doubt, dis discouragement, so on and so forth, insufficiency. Um, I felt I felt very insufficient. And um, it's easy in those times to think that making more money would make those things go away, right? I see now that's just not almost ever true, but 
uh, and if it is true, you're just far too easily satisfied. So I'm standing outside. I think Wes is with me. I say, hey, do you want to go to the youth group? Mr. Extrovert's like, sure, I'll go to a youth group I've never been to around a bunch of people I've never met, and they'll love me by the end. And so Wes went to, Wes went to the youth group, and I'm standing alone. I think maybe the girls were getting their nails done or something. I don't remember. But anyway, um, I'm standing outside, and all of a sudden, a black guy rides by, past me on a bicycle on the church property. Now, you need to know where, I've, where I lived prior to here. That's not unusual. In Wyoming, especially before Kanye bought his ranch, it's pretty unusual. And so I kind of noticed, like, huh. I didn't make a lot of, think a lot of it. It wasn't like a, a, a rubberneck kind of situation. Just noticed a different shade, you know, a different hue moving past my peripheral vision. And then I saw him circle back again. And then he said, Chris. And long story short, this kid was one of the orphans that I first met in 2004. And he was like this little and such a mess, such a messy kid. And uh, without going into all the details, these trips that I had been leading with this church in Wyoming, you know, they kept, they continued sometimes without me eventually. And one of the girls uh, from Wyoming fell in love with this guy when they were teenagers and they wound up dating long distance and eventually he got his U.S. citizenship and moved to Wyoming where he lives today. Okay, so that was cool. I'm kind of, my heart's racing a little bit. I go inside and I sit down uh, to have some chili or whatever it was for dinner that night and a guy walks up to me, a random guy walks up to me and he says, hey, um, I hear you're the guy we have to blame for the way our life has turned out. Well, this is not the first time I've heard that sentence, but, uh, but I didn't expect it all the way out in Wyoming, and so I thought, well, what have I done now? And uh, it turned out he was a doctor uh, who was leaving his practice here in America and moving his family to be full-time physicians for this particular orphanage. And so we talked for about an hour and so now I'm maybe at an hour and five minutes worth of, you know, hour and 30 minutes worth of miraculous. It's a long time for the miraculous. Like, it's a lot of miracle. Uh, and then uh, Wes comes walking down from the other building where the youth group was at. And uh, he says, hey, uh, I said, how would it go? And he said, oh, good. And he's like, the youth pastor knows you. I said, well, how does the youth pastor know me? He's like, his name's such and such. I'm like, I don't know who that is. And he said, um, well, he said that when you knew him, he was an atheist. And I'm like, what? And so long story short, in all of my travels through this season, I had shared the gospel with a young man who was an atheist and kind of made fun of him, honestly, in, in, a, in a fatherly way. For, I, kind of, I was kind of a godly bully, let's be honest. And... Uh, uh, I just I just called him to Christ and said, "You're not an atheist. You're just you're just 20. You know, like you're just an intellectual 20 year old. So don't don't get the two confused." And we had a really great brief encounter. It wasn't uh, anything monumental, but later he was saved and went into pastoral ministry. Still in pastoral ministry, and so I don't know. Within two hours of time, 
um, all of the boxes I was really insecure about, accomplishment, um, adventure, meaning, all of it was checked in a two hours time. And um, that has, that actually started to change my whole way of thinking. That, that one two hour period of time began to get the insecurity off my back and also understand that God was absolutely trustworthy. At the end of this sabbatical, here's what had happened. I had traveled literally all over the country. I had spent quality time with my kids during a rather father-centric stage of their lives. I don't know if they'd admit that. Um, I realized I had friends all over the country who were keeping track of me, even though I didn't speak to them very often. It's the best kind of friend. Uh, and I realized that God had been using me in ways that I did not understand. I was basically living the life of a wealthy man. And I had been in all of the meaningful ways that I would choose to spend my money. I had been living the life of a wealthy man. And it wouldn't have done me a bit of good at that time if God had given me hard, cold cash. Because everything I would have wanted with it, he was just giving me. Now, I, wanna be, I don't want to Ananias and Sapphira myself, so let me clean up a few loose ends. I was just a chain, a, a link in the chain of these events. I was not the main instrument in any of these events. I was just a part of many of these events. And that's what allowed me, I think, to constantly wonder if God was in this whole sacrificial, generous, living thing. I kept looking for my name to appear in lights as a big deal because of what I was giving. And I didn't know that that was what I was looking for. But sure enough, whenever I found that I wasn't the, a big name in lights, I was just one link in a long chain, I kid you not, something clicked in my heart and I have felt progressively wealthier every year of my life since that time. Is it better for God to give you a wealthy heart than to give you wealth? Well, I mean, the taxes are better. Honestly, I don't know the answer fully because I would say this is all I would really want with the money is to have a wealthy heart. All I would really do with all the money is to do the things that I got to do anyway, to travel and have experiences and adventures and risk and to be with my children and to be able to look my wife in the eye and say our lives are doing something meaningful. We're partners. We're co-heirs of, of the grace of God, all of that stuff came. It, and I will tell you straight up, that did not come. Uh, that, that was in a connection to the choice to scatter freely. It was. I, I just have to be honest about that. That's exactly what happened. I didn't feel like that. I didn't see that. I don't think I was even pursuing that. But the truth is, is that I got a wealthy heart. I think I have a wealthy heart because... God gave me a wealthy heart. And he did that in his fulfillment of this passage in Proverbs. I want to close by just reading a psalm that articulates this and introduce our Lord's table. 
Psalm 40, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see in fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I come, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written to me, I delight to do your will. O oh my God, your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know. O oh Lord, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from generation to generation. Well, it is, I think, goes beyond saying, and I think you understand, that anything said today is all built on the foundation of the most incredible act of generosity that will change all of the world forever, and that is that God spared not his own son, but gave him up freely as a redemption for us all. And one of the many effects of partaking in the Lord's table week by week should have is that if you're a believer, you should be reminded, as Hebrews would say, your heart should be trained by grace. So come, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and let your heart be trained by grace this morning.